And so I guess if we can break the fourth wall for people listening to this, you should, su- you should support public schooling and make sure that, you know, you let politicians know that public schools should be funded better. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, that the programs that community programs that public schools have had to do, we have to do them in the community colleges and the and four-year colleges as well, mm-hmm. you know, and these wraparound services, they cost a lot. Before we jump into this episode, I want to let you know that there's a few sound issues. First, Steph was really sick when we spoke. It wasn't COVID-related. Our conversation actually happened prior to the pandemic. And we were speaking over the phone, so the sound quality wasn't super sharp. That said, I think the things that Steph had to say is interesting enough that a bit of bad sound is a small cost to pay. Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome again to Just Sustainability. Curious conversations about sustainability, equity, and social justice. Stefania Fagosi is a sustainability analyst for Portland Community College. I first met her when I joined the Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education's Advisory Council. Steph's been a longtime member of HC's Advisory Council and one of the original members of its DEI, or Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. She's one of the main drivers behind many of HC's equity and social justice initiatives, and thus, I would argue, is one of the drivers of discourse about the integration of equity and sustainability within higher education more generally. Here's how she describes herself and some of the work that's being done at AISHI. Well, uh, my name is Stefania Fergusi. I'm currently working as a sustainability analyst for Portland Community College. Uh, I've been working in various aspects of sustainability for a long time, I would say, but I've been working with community colleges for the past almost eight years now. Um, I'm a free American adoptee, which I thought I would mention because we're going to be talking about equity and sustainability and we're on the radio and I have a very Italian last name, so it's kind of helpful for people. Um, I like to go hiking when I can with other people who like to go hiking, Um, but I've always been interested in uh, sustainability through like kind of a justice lens. I was into interested, but because of the rainforest issues that happened when I was in school. Uh, so yeah, yeah. No, that's a that's a perfect introduction. Um, I guess the first thing that I want to ask you about, other than who you are, is about some of your involvement with uh, ASHI, right? The Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education. Because I think that's where we first met, working with uh, the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion committee there. Uh, you've been on that committee longer than I have. I've been on there for three years. How long have you been on there? Uh, I think since it started. Well, I know since it started and kind of, we're never quite clear, but we think that's around 2014, okay. 2015. So I joined ASHI's um, advisory council in 2012, and it was at a time period when ASHI yeah. was really uh, as an organization was really trying to figure out who it was and how to get to that next step. So there was not a whole lot of committee responsibility the way that we kind of see it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I stayed on when we formed the diversity, equity, 
inclusion subcommittee or whatever. We don't really have a formal name for ourselves. We're always kind of trying to figure out what that is. Yeah. Um, but that, those are things that we work on. So I, uh, it's actually a really hard decision for me to make to be on that committee. <laughs> oh, yeah? No, no, tell me about that. So um, why was that a hard decision? I think because I'm an Asian American adoptee, uh, I have white parents. I'm always like trying to figure out where my voice fits in this conversation about race, you know? So <laughs> like, well, I do have a lot, of, a lot of people have a lot of privilege. A lot of have intersectional mm-hmm. privilege. Um, and, you know, what's my point of view and, and how can I do it? But ultimately um, I was working for a community college that I saw as probably potentially becoming um, a minority serving institution, which it eventually mm-hmm. did. And I knew that I needed to, kind of walk through the program that I was creating with a different set of lenses than the educational environment that I grew up in. So I'm very private school educated. Um, last time I attended public school, I tell people I was in first grade. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that includes my master's degree. So I knew I was going into a very different place and a very different kind of program than the ones I grew up with. Um, and I wanted to make sure that you know, I carry that awareness and that thoughtful, you know, that centering our students mm-hmm. uh, with, with all of the programming work and all of the operations work that we do. One of the reasons I want to talk to Steph for Just Sustainability is that she works at a community college. It seems to me that the conversations about sustainability in higher education, as it often comes to conversations about higher ed more broadly, uh, seems to focus mostly on four-year institutions. However, it also seems to me that much of the most innovative work, particularly when it comes to access and inclusion, in fact happens at community colleges. So this is what Steph had to say when I asked her about sustainability at community colleges. I mean, I think fundamentally what community colleges are, are about are providing access to affordable access to education for everybody, mm-hmm. right? So when you apply to community college, there's no like essay question. There's no question of submitting your, I don't think, any SAP scores. We will do some assessment testing, of course, mm-hmm. to see that you're placed into the appropriate classes. But this is really about education for everybody, mm-hmm. and it's all kinds of education. So we're talking about community education. We're talking about career and technical education, which are the things that people associate the most with us, which is like, oh, I'm going to go get a degree, and I'm going to learn how to do be an electrician or be in nursing, or I might want to train in some kind of mechanical field. And um, we do those things, but we also provide general education. We, we have transfer degree programs in Oregon. Um, and so, you know, a lot of students will transfer to a four-year school, and they'll come to community college for a huge number of reasons, including affordability, um, including whether or not they're really prepared for college. Uh, They'll come back to school if they haven't been in school in a long time. Um, People will come here also for continuing education or because they want to change fields. Just a really affordable way to do it. And we're really good at being kind of smaller scale than a large university. So we're not, you know, a liberal arts college, but we have smaller classes. Uh, We have a lot of personal interaction. We have a lot more academic advising, I think, than you'll find at some of the four-year public universities. And so there's a lot more hand-holding going on that I think people necessarily would associate with such large institutions. We're far more personal places, I think, than people realize. (laughs) No, uh, my spouse used to work for a community college. That was one of the things I really appreciated about there. Um, 
right? Because she was at Norwalk Community College in uh, Fairfield County in Connecticut. And it was a huge school. I, I think it was like 40,000 students. But it felt like um, I was at the, at the same time I was at Wesleyan. And it felt like she had a closer contact with her students than I did. And I was in the school with like 5,000 students. Yeah, even though it's huge, right? So yeah. we have, um, so just to give you an idea of some of the hands-on extracurricular stuff that goes on around here, we have programs for first-generation students, the federal programs. Uh, we have CAMP, which is Assistance for Migrant uh, Children of Migrant Workers. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the programs, sort of to help with uh, building <clears throat> kind of a cohort of people uh, to help get through college. We have uh, a lot of centers at PCC, which is where I work at Portland Community College. We have multicultural centers. We have veteran resource centers. We have LGBTQ centers. So we have a lot of the things that you find, you know, at other schools, um, but they're staffed. <laughs> they're not like students. It's not a student club. Mm. It's a center with mm-hmm. a staff person. Um, that it, or they're working in some way with a uh, a, a staff person to mm-hmm. and working with students to create those places. Um, not every school is as lucky as we are to have staff that do that, but we definitely have those staff here. Yeah, and so how does that that different context shape the way you you've thought about the intersection of equity and sustainability? Right, given that uh, PCC does. <laughs> Have a right. It's much more diverse than a lot of other institutions, and I think that's true for most community colleges. Um, that it has a, a great diversity of the sorts of students, right? So there's a large number of students who aren't degree seeking or who are there just doing like right, the like community ed classes and stuff. And so you have, a, in some ways, a really broad audience. Yeah, we have a lot of rate. You know, we've it, beyond racial diversity. We have, like you said, purpose of college, like why they're attending school, whether or not they have families, where they are in their careers. Um, why you know it's it, it, you know it is a huge diversity of students, and I think because of that, we're we're all trying to meet everybody's really individual needs. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just a lot of needs to be met at this place, and so that I think leads to a very student-led, student-driven approach. Mm-hmm. We don't have very high graduation completion rates either, and so that's a constant worry for us, um, mainly because that's why we're here for our students is to help them reach our goals, but also from a financial point of view, like you're going to do a lot better if your students complete. <laughs> you mm-hmm. have to keep coming back. That's your students you need to recruit. Um, so that's, you know, those are, those are major factors in, in how and why we do what we do. So we pay a lot of attention to what it is that um, helps students complete when their circumstances are less than maybe the ideal conditions for going to college, mm-hmm. which might be I have no other job but then to go to school and focus on school. I don't have anybody that I have to care for at home or, <laughs> you know, I don't have dependents that need me or siblings that need me or parent, parent care. or you know, babysitting that I need to do, um, I, my sole focus is school. So we need to find ways to take those burdens off of our students. Mm-hmm. And then with regard to sustainability, a lot of uh, what's, you know, I think there are a lot of ways that we help our students. So um, the first thing is basically is making sure that all of our messaging appeals to all of our students. Mm-hmm. So not just 
focusing on like waste reduction, um, but understanding that a lot of students don't have uh, resources like that. And so we might want to focus on food security or transportation issues. Um, I think also we're an important factor in giving students a voice in the civic process and, mm-hmm. and providing them that with that first engagement opportunity either to um, engage with the civic process or to do community service. I, I think that's a big role that we play too. Listening to Steph talk about sustainability work at Portland Community College, let me to be curious about how folks at PCC integrate sustainability and community service in their programming. Steph's response to that question led us to talk about experiential learning and its benefits. Here's that conversation. So how are some like the concrete ways that you link together uh, sustainability and community service? One of the things that for us is really good is we have learning gardens on every campus. Yeah. I think. Yeah, all four of the major campuses. And so that gives students a place to volunteer on campus, right? Yeah. We don't have to worry about transit issues. Um, we're just trying to remove barriers for students to, to have like that hands-on experience of contribute, contributing to society. Yeah. And we have food pantries. And so a lot of that food goes into our food pantries. For Even for students who don't have a lot of personal resources, um, they're able to be empowered by giving back. Mm-hmm. And I think also where we can, when our professors are able to make that like a class assignment and incorporate that into their teaching practices, that gives students a way to do it without necessarily asking more of a commitment than they can afford to give, if that makes any sense. I'm, I'm trying to figure out the best way to phrase that. But no, no, no. I, so I we do have classes that require community service and, and or sort of work experience. Um, and you know, when I was at a four-year liberal arts school, like we had some of that that was required, but anything beyond that, like in the summer, if you were a poor student, was going to be harder to do because you mm-hmm. needed to go home and work. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I think that's a that, that's a, a good way to think about it. I do think a lot of times when folks think about enrichment opportunities, we have a tendency to to put them on top of the other commitments that students have, and then we end up having things like student burnout or like you know we have decreased participation because students have other commitments. So thinking about how to integrate the enrichment opportunities into the the sort of the day-to-day class stuff that students have to do anyways is a good way to improve access to them. Right. And I think it's also a good way to recognize the different learning styles that our students have. For whatever reason, and this is personal, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think we probably have a lot more hands-on learners. Mm-hmm. That's true. We're backed up by stats. But I do, I do know that people who the educational system has failed a lot of them seem to be more hands-on oriented and need that kind of visual or hands-on attention. I've had um, college professors from my old school say things like, wow, the student was really having a problem with mathematics. We sent them off to automotive for a little while and they came back and it was no problem at all. Mm -hmm. So they just needed that opportunity to like look at how wheel ratios work or whatever, but to be able to relate the math to something concrete, um, Mm -hmm. not everybody is as good an abstract thinker or has had that training um, as everyone else. And so, you know, it's a skill that you can learn, but (laughs) sometimes you need to do it through hands-on learning. Well, no, I mean, I think uh, I'm less fresh with the, the literature on experiential learning, but it does seem for many, many people, I think it's no particular groups of students, just in students in general, that having more experiential learning seems to improve learning outcomes. For sure. And you think about marketing, and this might be a good way to translate some of the marketing lingo into education. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we do immersive 
learning. That's really what that is, right? It's that repeat, we talk about having repeated contact to ideas before they really sink in, um, which is why we have to do our marketing multiple times and we want multiple points of touch. I don't think that that's different for a lot of learning. Mm-hmm. Right? Like we need to see it, smell it, feel it, hear it before it really sinks in. And so for a lot of us, we don't even know what we've learned when we walk out of a four-year program until we've been doing other things for a while and then it sinks in. It doesn't necessarily sink in at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that works for us, but it doesn't, some people need to sink in sooner to see why it's bothering. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think that it affects uh, persistence, right? I think throughout higher ed nowadays, folks, uh, are wringing their hands about persistence and retention. Uh, and I think if students see outcomes more immediately, that helps, right? I think it, it adds to the student's sense of accomplishment. It adds to the, the sense of value that they're getting from the education. So, yeah. I mean, right. if we're thinking about Mark's a huge case, student loan burden, right? You need justification. Yeah. Like, why do I want to be in this kind of debt? Why am I doing this? Why shouldn't I just walk away? Yeah. Um, because you, you know, it. A lot of people don't have that support system at home to tell them that's the right path either. Mm-hmm. So they're relying on their own gumption, I guess, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. to tell them that, yeah, this is the right thing to do for me and my family, and whatever risk I'm taking, it's going to pay out. Like that's mm-hmm. a lot of determination. Mm-hmm. Even the community college rates. I think our tuitions probably in the 12 to 13. I might not have that right. We might have to look that up on our website. My husband's, the school all-inclusive, it's like 60. That's not the ticket price, but it is, you know, it is what students see when they apply to school. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and I think if, particularly if we're trying to better serve first-generation students and students from uh, lower-income households, right? we, we need mm-hmm. to make it clear the sort of value that they're getting because there's an Right. I mean, for a lot of students, there's an opportunity cost for college, and we need to show that the the payout is worth that opportunity cost, right? particularly if we're trying to be accessible. Yeah. At this point in our conversation, I, perhaps not unexpectedly, went on a bit of a tangent where I ended up uh, declaring that folks should pressure the political representatives to better fund higher education. This led to a chat about trends and discourse about sustainability and equity. So I guess if we can break the fourth wall for people listening to this, you should, su- you should support public schooling and make sure that, you know, you let politicians know that public schools should be funded better. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, that the programs that community programs that public schools have had to do, we have to do them in the community colleges and the and four-year colleges as well, mm-hmm. you know, and these wraparound services, they cost a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so mental health services, adding those to, to four-year institutions and adding um, cohort services, it's a lot to get students ready. And what that really, I think, is a reflection is is on equity in our society. And that, that matters a lot for sustainability, mm-hmm. right? So those inequities in our system make it that much more difficult for us to create a just and sustainable world and equ- an environmentally sustainable world. I'm going to use this as a, a, a good opportunity to transition. So the other thing I wanted to ask you about, other than your experiences at uh, uh, community colleges, was with all your time uh, in AC and being in the, the DEI subcommittee since the beginning, what are some of those big general trends that you're seeing in higher ed that when it comes to uh, equity and sustainability? There are a lot of trends in equity, period. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that they're limited to higher ed. So I've seen them in my own personal knitting online communities. I've seen them in 
the gaming community. I've seen it happen. I've seen these like kind of burst and I think it's, um, there are a lot of external factors going on right now that have incentivized a lot of bullying and a lot of people to more strongly pick a side than they might have before, where they felt that they could be in the, in the middle of a conversation and, you know, they felt that they could be neutral and have stopped feeling that they could be neutral. And I feel like that that's everywhere. Um, it's, it, it is a trend we're certainly seeing in sustainability and it's part of our need to be able to pass our, our mission on to the next generation. So we have shifting demographics, we have big national politics going on, we have a worldwide, uh, we have a climate crisis that kind of motivates people to kind of cling to social norms and helps with, you know, this is too short for this podcast, but <laughs> it's connected to the rise of fascism and nationalism worldwide. And these are all self-reinforcing um, things. And so we're, we're definitely seeing that. We're seeing a lot of the things in the world happen that were sort of threatened by climate change and they, that includes social impacts as well so when you look back and people talk they talk about the physical impacts of climate change but then they all we we had classes on things like life boat, boat ethics and who gets to benefit you know at the very end um and we're seeing that play out i think it's harder for the public to make that connection but it's there um and i don't see any evidence that all of our politicians don't recognize this at some level this is perhaps a good place to end this episode. Before I sign off, here's a quick summary of what Steph and I spoke about. First, we talked about how Portland Community College has approached integrating sustainability into their practices and programming. Second, we talked about experiential learning and what we believe are its benefits. And third, we chatted about what Steph saw as some of the important current trends in the discourse about sustainability and its relationship with equity. Please join me again next week for the second part of the conversation that I had with Steph. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.